Welcome to the Level Design Podcast. In this episode, we have a great guest for you, ExubiSoft, and now at Machine Games, a level design craftsman, Yulyu Kosminonescu. Let's get on with the show. This week, I am joined by some wonderful co-hosts, Rob McLaughlin and Jonathan Wilson. And a big welcome to a very, very special guest, Yulyu. Welcome to the show. Thanks for inviting me. This is going to be a really good show. I've been a, a fan of yours on Twitter for quite a long while. You've been putting out about the most informative tweets and inspirational tweets that any level designer can actually get hold of. So thank you for, for coming to the show. Well, thank you for inviting me. I feel I'm flattered that you would have such high praise of me. I hope all the information that I posted helped a lot of people. So, so let's rewind. Okay, you were working at Ubisoft in Romania, right? Yeah, in Bucharest. You've been there like what, twelve years? So you've you've seen a whole range of games since then, right? Yeah, I was I was hired as a QA tester back in two thousand and seven, and I worked mm-hmm. on a lot of uh, projects as a QA tester. I worked on uh, Rainbow Six Vegas two. I worked on Chessmaster. I worked on the Avatar project. I worked on a lot of Nintendo DS projects as a QA tester, but uh, since 2013, I was hired as a level designer on Watch Dogs 1. Oh, wow. Actually, actually, what I wanted at the time was to, to work as a level designer for Assassin's Creed, especially uh-huh. because I was a bit, really big fan of the multiplayer games for Assassin's Creed, if you remember those. Right. There was this super cool blend between stealth and social and stuff like that, and you would sneak, and I thought it was super fun. And I actually I was really super fan about all of those games, and I wanted to work on those things. And what happened was that I actually applied for the job. I failed it three times because they oh, well. I'm not afraid to admit this. I knew nothing about level design, but I just wanted to work as a level designer. So uh, the third time, they finally got fed up with my ambition and like, okay, just kidding, <laughs> right? And uh, I, I applied for an Assassin's Creed uh, job, but uh, that didn't work out. And they, I mean, there was this situation where we were two guys on the same job and they sort of picked the one that was already working as a dev tester. So they said, okay, we, you, you had a pretty good uh, test. You had a pretty good interview we're going to give you another opportunity. Here's Watch Dogs 1. And I didn't really know what Watch Dogs 1 was, what was at that point. I was more like, hmm, I've seen some trailers. Is it like a GTA clone or something? And they said, yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. just go, go yeah. do that. And I said, oh, sure, whatever, <laughs> let's go play, do this. It's GTA or something. <laughs> and actually, I got on the project and I did, I think, maybe about 10 racing missions at some point, mm-hmm. which involved a lot of scripting and a lot of location scouting inside the city. Because I wasn't actually working on the main game. I worked on the, the DLC, the Bad Blood DLC. Okay. And yeah. um, I also did a part of one of the... Um, I think the, end, the last mission in the, in the mission pack. I did that with the, with the senior level designer. And uh, then I worked on Assassin's Creed Rogue for a bunch of months in uh, Sofia, in uh, Bulgaria. And uh, I think it was, it was pretty fun because the challenge was that we were supposed to take 
the the city itself, the city of New York, mm-hmm. and try to make it more user-friendly, more navigable. Because if you remember Assassin's Creed 3, the city of New York wasn't particularly navigable because the buildings were all like this. So for Assassin's Creed Rogue, the approach was that we're going to take the city and we're going to make it as navigable as walking on the streets. So Mm -hmm. basically, we transformed it in about a month from this to something like this. So, so going from a very like pointy pointy roofs to kind of much flatter. Yeah, roofs. we call them uh, roof highways. <laughs> actually, did some sort of uh, testing in that period, and it felt like you could actually traverse the city faster on rooftops than you would on the streets because the streets were super windy and long and all sorts of crazy angles. While on the rooftops, you could just run a straight line and use all sorts of ropes and stuff like that in all directions, and it would have been fine. And uh, I did that for a bunch of months. Then I worked on uh, on Skull and Bones, but I can't talk about that project. And then I worked on Assassin's Creed Syndicate. And uh, we did something that actually didn't make it into the game. And then after a bunch of months, uh, I started work on Watch Dogs 2. If you remember the taxi missions? Well, I know the taxi missions. I don't think I've actually done any of them because I'm still running around the city trying to get a bunch of clothes. Well, but... <laughs> I'm offended. I'm sorry. <laughs> right, I will go and do that this week. Right, okay. Uh, and um, what, was, what was different about the taxi missions? The taxi missions mm-hmm. had a, a different approach from other racing missions. They were more narrative. All the characters had flavor and they were trying to tell a story, usually a funny story. And we actually tried to juggle with the mechanics of these things. So it wasn't just racing. You actually had Mm -hmm. to fight for something in order to actually win the favor of the passenger. One of the the references was that you were sort of an Uber driver. So you had to do some crazy things that the passengers would ask you. So... There's a mission where... So it's kind of like requests. Uh, yeah. Like passenger requests to get a better rating and stuff yeah, like so, that. And there were some some really crazy missions. Some of uh, some of those guys mm-hmm. were asking you to, oh, I lost my robot somewhere in... Uh, uh, can you please go find my robot? Oh, it's over there. No, it's over there. No, it's over there. There was one, one mission where you had to do these crazy jumps because the, the passenger uh, mm-hmm. was like a stunt fanatic and she wanted to record the... Uh, Stunt options, or you just had to find the craziest routes and jumps from the city. Yeah, we had another one that was inspired by uh, Every Day is Friday, the movie. Okay. Where you had to, to drive a car that was, the passenger was a weed smoker, and he started smoking weed in the car, and both Marcus and the driver, they get kind of dizzy, and... Uh, start cracking jokes because the car started to act a little <laughs> funky. Uh, I, I recommend playing them. They're, uh, they're really fun. It sounds a bit like the Tom Cruise uh, film uh, uh, Collateral. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Taxi driver in a yeah. position where he definitely doesn't want yeah. to be in. <laughs> but that, that, that stuff sounds really cool, though. It's like a, it's a deviation from the norm of all the other tasks you'd be doing in the game, but just to have that do this little task but have the narrative with the driver like driving across the city and stuff and having that back and forth so it was quite nice to have especially in open world games what's the structure of the city fixed by the time you did those taxi missions so you were working in a in a city that had already been designed yeah the, the city was, was set by that time i mean um 
by the time I moved on to the project, the city was already fixed there. It fixed. It wasn't broken in the first place. However, <laughs> the road system was locked and uh, Mm -hmm. You could actually assume that nothing, no big changes are gonna were gonna happen inside that location. Did you get to choose to build the uh, the stunts and things like that, the jumps, or were they already there? Uh, no, no, I didn't get to choose them, but I did a lot of location scouting. So this is one of the things that <laughs> that you have to do when you're doing working with content that's sort of uh, blocked. You have to walk around the city and think like mm, that would be mm -hmm. cool if we use that and that and that. How about if we made the mission over here, right? Um, it's like you're looking over uh, Google Maps map and you're like, oh, <laughs> how cool would it be to have a mission over here? You know, <laughs> mission over here. Okay. Uh, but in spite of that, there was a lot of scripting involved and we had a lot of um, overall props placed over the, in, inside the world just so we can use those things and we had a lot of fun with it i mean we played a lot with creating scenarios that the players would use in their mission i think uh, there was quite a lot of scripting involved and it sort of deviated from the classical here's 20 races in the game just do them mm -hmm. right it sort of added more more flavor i mean yeah, yeah. And there was a mission. There was a mission at some point where you had to pick up a coach that lost his favorite <laughs> player, and he's like, well, I don't know where he is. He's probably in a bar or something. Let's let's look let's look for him. And you have to go scout him in uh, in different bars. And the the coach would go out, get out of the car, and like, ah, oh, he's not in here. Let's look at the other one. Like, I love that idea of having to do location scouting in a virtual environment. So you're going like, oh yeah, that'd be good. Oh look, they put it, they put this bar asset there. Let's use all the bar assets. You know? mm -hmm. I, I do love that idea that, of having to build missions around that. Did you ever have the problem where a location that you'd picked and scripted onto was changed later or anything like that? Or like you said, was the city completely fixed at that point? No, the city was kind of fixed. They, they weren't changing anything by that point. It was mm -hmm. somewhere close to E3, past E3 maybe. So... Right. By the time you reach E3, you're kind of locking things down. You're not really trying to do big changes because they're super expensive to do. And once you you, you start changing things, like then it's going to cost you a lot of time to fix all of those things. So no, there, there weren't any any big changes. But um, the challenge is, as in all level design challenges, is that you need to work with limited resources, right? So yeah. mm -hmm. you already have this huge city and there's a lot of opportunities there. You just need to be creative enough to spot where each bit of information goes and like, how can I use this bit here? How can I use this other bit here? Because it's not just, okay, we build the city and here's our missions and that's it. No, the city is open. There's a, a large pool of opportunities that you can still exploit and you can still use for build other types of content it's also very much fun and, and opposite to the stuff that i've had to do because sometimes i have to build the missions and build the levels at the same time and have this like catch 22 yeah. of going like well i'm not sure what the level should be because i don't know what the mission should be but if i had a mission i wouldn't know what the level is that that's a problem with indie developers i guess that do everything yeah 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 absolutely it's about setting some something that's static so you can build off that and mm -hmm. that's the challenge that often in games is that everything is not fixed and up in the air so that you 
you have this terrible sort of system of circular dependencies where everything depends on everything else and you can't physically fix anything down. Yeah. It's in an ideal scenario, stuff slowly starts getting locked down. Uh, like, and then you're like, yes, now I can refine this and it's going to work perfectly. Like, yeah, we had to change where the exit is. So now nothing works. I was like, no, no. <laughs> if, if you want like, my, uh, my perspective on this, uh, the only time where I felt like everything was super stable, not, not as much as the stability of the world or how locked it was. It was when you start working on DLCs. Because usually that happens post-launch, and by that time everything has to work. There's no excuse for things not to work. So it's one of the most uh, fluent experiences that you can have because everything just works the way you want them. And if it doesn't work the way you want them, then you're just going to have to deal with what you already have. I think that's where the most fun can be had as well, like in terms of development, because like you said, it's all your systems have to work because your game is coming out bef like before any of this DLC is done. So all your systems are working. You've been working with them for months, if not years by this point. So you should know them like the back of your hand. And DLC is usually an opportunity to turn around and go, okay, what would I have liked to have done originally? Or a cool idea you never got to put into the core game. And can that be incorporated into the DLC? Yeah, it's like I always find myself every day learning something not necessarily new, but getting a better understanding of how to actually use something that if I knew ages ago would benefit the just the speed of content that could be produced like now by comparison. I mean, this is something that, that you've been doing a little bit. You, you, you've been, you said that you've been a level design coach for, for people. You've, you've gone from learning kind of on the job now to teaching people how to get into it, right? Well... I wouldn't say that I'm teaching people how to get into it. I'm more like trying to make people understand what this job is about mm -hmm. yeah. so they could make up their own minds if they want to get into it or not because I can't force anyone to do things that they want to do. <laughs> yeah. And uh, usually what happens is that what I'm trying to do is try to expose them to the problems and the things that they should be aware of when they're they're trying to apply for this job mm -hmm. and it's it's not really about applying to the job it's more like getting them in the mood of actually enjoying level design as a, as a side mm -hmm. hobby maybe something that they really really want to do with passion rather than just wanting to get a job in this in, this, in the industry yeah. and what i'm finding is that there, there are people who think they know what they want and there are people who actually want to be environment artists and um, they can get right. really discouraged when they figure out that oh my god i have to actually <laughs> plan all these things do i need to think about the gameplay it's not all about the graphics and the 3d spaces mm -hmm. oh my god what am i got myself into and it's sort of getting into this this paradigm where like should I should I keep going or should I just drop it? Well, maybe I should be an environment artist. Well, if if that's what you want, yeah. then I'm happy to have showed you that that's exactly what you want to do. So you found your way. But if you want to do more than this, here's what this means, right? You've you've helped them figure it, like figuring it out, and it's like I, you're right. Understanding that like the distinction between level design and environment art. And getting the understanding and appreciation that there is a distinct difference between the two. And there's a lot more methodical thought that has to go into a level design. Like you said, it's not just about the graphics. It's like, yes, it can look super pretty and that's great. But does it actually work? Does it complement gameplay? Is the AI going to behave over here? Is that actually going to 
be framed correctly is the different kind of thoughts that you have to come up with as a level designer to support the gameplay or support the narrative beat you're trying to hit. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's all about trying to get an idea about what you're trying to do before you actually do it. Like, I'm, I'm going to build yeah. a level for mm -hmm. this game, but how does this game actually function? Can I actually yeah, start exactly. analyzing this game and understanding what the mechanics behind it are? Can I actually build levels mm -hmm. based on that? Do, do I actually understand what flow is and how people move yeah. through space and what's the purpose of making the space this way rather than another way? How do I establish relationship between spaces? Like maybe I want to go from here to here without having to go into the details of actually building those spaces and wasting a lot of time just building some pretty spaces that might not be good for gameplay in any way. What do you think, Yuli, to the kind of skills, the kind of the way that people are interested in about how humans play games what skills do you think you as a level designer that you have in terms of being an architect being a philosopher almost to, to work out or a psychologist to work out what players are attempting to do what do you think are the strongest skills that a level designer can have i, th I think you should have some sort of introspection in what you actually want to do with that right so it's like, to me, level design is a lot about architecture and urbanism and player psychology and how people actually interpret spaces and how they feel about when they're doing some certain things when they're playing a game. And how do you actually get them to feel those things? And at the same time, how do you actually make them to make their own choices inside a video game without having to be funneled down a particular path and just doing something that you put in front of them because that's easy. That's something that's super easy. You can you can just make a, a progression flow that takes you through the level, but actually understanding how the players think and trying to empower them is something completely Ooh. different. I suppose as, a, as an open world level designer, that's something you always have to be aware of because there are so many possibilities in how the player can move through a space that you have to guide them like that? Well, the, the thing about uh, open world level design is that you don't actually know what the players are going to do, right? So you have absolutely... Do you just give up? Do you, do you literally go like... <laughs> no. No, you don't, you don't give up. I pose that wrong. What I want to say is like, instead of saying, okay, I, I, I want the player to go from here to here to here, you say like, I don't know how the player is going to get to their goals, but I'll place them near enough that they can get to them for example. That, that's what I actually meant. No, it's, it's not that. It's the fact that you want to let the player do whatever they want. But in order for them to actually do whatever they want to do is make sure that they're not inside the maze. So you got you to gotta signal, like, to try to signal some spaces, try to signal some intersections, give them some notable landmarks that they can see so they can actually build, like, a mental model inside their, inside their head of where I am at this point. Oh, I see something over there that might be actually interesting. So uh, I'm going to go there. And he goes there and surprise, that's where the gameplay is, right? That's where you put it. Because you, every everything that you put inside an open world acts like a carrot. If it stands out, then it should be interesting for the player, right? One of the things that happens usually in early game development when you're starting to build the open world is that most of the places look sort of the same, right? You're doing the basic block out of the entire world. I actually think I did a, a thread on this. You're trying to build a virtual city, right? So you're going to make out, map out the streets, you're going to put in the houses, and then you're going to go around running through the house, through the streets and trying to figure things out. Well, if everything looks the same, then the player is going to be like, 
I'm lost. Where am I? Mm -hmm. I have absolutely mm -hmm. no point of reference. I don't know where to go. If you go and you look into actual cities, you're going to notice that there are no actual places where you get lost. There's always like a perspective and that has like a landmark. Here's a church. Here's a bell tower. Here's a fancy statue. Here's this. Here's that. Here's a very interesting building. And by juggling with these kinds of components, you're sort of make, making sure that the player understands where he is and he can actually uh, decide from himself where he wants to go right if you try to condense the gameplay in those particular spaces then you're gonna know that the player's not gonna get lost you know that he's gonna go where the gameplay is because that's the only place that he can actually go i mean he can go in many other places but based on how much you put inside the map he's just gonna go where the gameplay is right or they'll go to the other places and go like well there's not much here or there's not there's not much of interest. Let me go to the carrot. Well, they, they could mm -hmm. go to the other places, but the thing is you're going to have to put gameplay in those places as well, right? So this is this is where planning comes in because you get to decide what interesting places you're going to have in the world and the player's gonna is, is, is going to orient himself based on that. And, and you, you don't need to put anything else. I mean, basically, the things that exist between points of interest inside the cities are called fillers, mostly because they're there just to, to signal you, tell you that, okay, don't pay attention to me. Just look in front. There's like a really interesting cathedral over there. Maybe there's something going on over there, right? Mm -hmm. So the art effort is going to be in that location. Everything else is going just going to look good enough to give you the impression that it's just a house, it's just a part of the city, it's not particularly important. If he goes explore, to explore those bits, bits, for example, the way you do it in Assassin's Creed, maybe he's going to find a collectible, maybe he's going to find something else. That's just something that you do to empower him to actually try to explore the city a little more. But the points of interest, that's where the core of the gameplay is. That's where you put all the enemies, all the big challenges, all the whatever gameplay you want to put in there. The, the goals or the gates that, that, that you need to finish, like in Batman, that you yeah, have... You actually learn the skills yeah. that you need to learn in order to, to progress through the game. So effectively, you've got a kind of map of nodes, and the nodes are the important bits, and the bits between the bits, the in-between spaces, you establish visual language where it, it looks boring, effectively. There's not much there. And draw the player towards the interesting places. Well, boring is a strong, strong word. Right. I call it not so interesting. Not as interesting right. as the other, right? <laughs> yeah. Like a, a normal thing compared to the heightened state mm -hmm. of the carriage areas rather than a boring. I think boring is very, very nasty, but yeah. normal. <laughs> no, it's not supposed to be boring. It's just supposed to be generic enough to not make right. you It doesn't stand out. They all, right? they all blend in. Mm -hmm. Boring might be the wrong word, but I think what you're saying is they, all, they can blend together, whereas these landmarks or set piece points will always stand out in some signified way so the, that's what's going to catch the player's eye a good example that springs to mind is batman arkham city mm -hmm. that you have these towers that, that are lit up red by the bad guys but it, that you can see from nearly anywhere so those are the points of interest if you want to have a little challenge like these are the the, the weenies that you go to but yeah. if you go down on the streets there's bad guys there that you can beat up right that's the gameplay of the game so mm -hmm. but the streets themselves aren't they're normal. They're like yeah, they're they're not going to keep you there for more than thirty seconds, right? Right. Uh, the the thing is that you want to concentrate concentrate all your development 
level design efforts in the locations that are designed, the, the big locations, the one that stand out. You want to treat everything else just like a pacing issue, right? If you want to go from Cathedral A to Church B, you're going to make sure that the player has enough space to move from one place to another, right? If the, if the road there is too long, then maybe you are going to break it up with these encounters, with these guys that you might want to fight, right? Because maybe running there, it might be, get a little boring if you use that, if that's just what you're doing, right? So it's, it's all about pacing at some point. If you can draw a line between two points, you can actually define if, if it's too long or too short, because you can also have this problem where you have like too many landmarks that are just one next to each other. And it's like, where am I, where am I supposed to go? Because there's so many options, right? So you just need to spread them out in such a way that the player can actually look at the map and decide, okay, so I can go from here to here can go from there to here maybe the distances shouldn't be so so great and if they're too too low too too much maybe we can break them up and add some more intermediate encounters into the city i mean if i remember correctly assassin's creed the unity had these things where you would walk through the streets and there were like be random encounters that would pop up like people that would mug other people and uh, guards beating up civilians and stuff like that those were there so they could break up the pacing, so you wouldn't just feel like you're walking for 10 minutes between two locations. But each location actually hosts gameplay. They, I think they have missions in those places, right? Mm -hmm. So they, they're built with a purpose in mind. Everything else is supposed to fill out the city somehow, so it doesn't feel like you have one landmark next to each other. But at the same time, it's there to actually give you the flavor of the city, make you feel like, oh, this is how... I don't know, Parisians lived back in the 1700s. It's gross, but it's also super interesting. And I can climb through this window and get to their houses hmm. and steal their beer. I think it's kind of interesting that this, this aspect of uh, game urbanism is it's kind of exploding. There's uh, someone uh, on Twitter called Constantinos Dimopoulos who writes about virtual cities. And he's, he's uh, I think, a, a game urbanist and designer. And some of the stuff that he always brought out was like, if you're building a, a virtual city, you start out with, with some simple stuff like where's the water and where are they going to get their food and how they're going to be protected. And then you start building out from there and keep on building out and building out. And by the end of it, you have a city. It's that simple, by the way, apparently. But uh, So form follows function. Always, yeah. always forms, <laughs> always follows function. That's that's my motto. You also said like you always have to remember whether they shit. You have to like you know remember like where they get their food, but where they're gonna do it. Where's the waste? Mm -hmm. You know, <laughs> probably in the river. Probably in the river. Yeah, yeah. for the town down the, down the road. Yeah, because uh, what this does is that it sort of also allows you to build more variety inside your levels. So you're not just building the those locations for the sole purpose of having a bunch of guys that you can beat up. It also tells the story of why is this building here? Uh, where are they taking out their trash? Maybe there's an infiltration point there. Maybe I can sneak through those things. Maybe I can jump into a garbage truck and infiltrate inside the building, right? Maybe maybe there's a construction site on the side of the building that I can build. I know it's a, it's something that we kind of detest now because it's in every game. But but if you look at real cities, there's there's construction every city. Yeah, but it's a sort of becoming a trope. So, you know. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What I'm trying to say is that if you if you look at the functional aspect 
of these buildings, of these locations, you can actually come up with a lot of, uh, of gameplay motifs that you can use mm-hmm. to make the location also more playable and more believable from a narrative standpoint, right? One thing I really admire about how Rockstar builds their cities, I mean, they obviously have massive amount of inspiration from real cities. And in addition, there's, you know, there's a language of cities that we all understand in terms of the function of each area of a city. But the fact is that when you are sort of dropped into the city, you can almost instantly tell where you are because each section of the city has a sort of theme mm-hmm. which you can identify from the everything from the, the building construction techniques to the, the traffic and the people in the in the road. So you can just think, oh, okay, well, I'm down by the docks. I'm up in the mountains. I'm in the posh area, the rich area and so on like that. Does that is that that theming? Is that something that you find useful, Ilu? Yeah, I find it super useful, and I, I wish more games would do that. I remember one of one of the moments when I actually noticed this in uh, in GTA Five, for example, was that I was driving a car by night, and I actually noticed that in the neighborhood where I was actually driving the car, there was like a fire truck station or something like that, and there were actual cars driving out of the truck station and going into the city, and I was like. Oh, so this is actually how things are supposed to work. This is super interesting. So does it mean that those planes actually leave from the airport? And if you have a hospital, people actually go to that hospital and, mm. st- and stuff like that. Well, you know that that's just smoke and mirrors to some extent, yeah. because otherwise you, you can't actually sustain that sort of simulation. I mean, it's sort of made to look like that, and it's good that it's trying to be systemic at some point. But if you just move to another part of the city and you cause an accident, you're just going to have like an ambulance spawn out of thin air somewhere. This is just because maintaining a simulation at that level is super, super hard. It takes a lot of computation power and computers can't actually handle it. I mean, maybe they can. I don't know. I, I think, you know, populating a city with several million people and you're doing and driving and, and having these AI components moving around the city would be a real waste because <laughs> they'll be like, what, why is the game running so slow? Because John Smith decided to jump out of a plane and hit a building, you know? Um, But the online side of that is very interesting to see when you go into the GTA Online and there's people flying planes and Mm -hmm. they're dropping cars on your head from helicopters. And that was my last experience of GTA 5 because I rage quit after that. Yeah, that was it. You were done. But no, the the systemic nature of open world games, despite we do know it is smoke and mirrors, uh, like you said, but it is nice to still see it because it does help add that extra layer to the city and make it feel alive. So yes, despite I might see an ambulance actually leave a hospital and then when I knock someone over or whatever, it won't be that ambulance that comes out. They won't do that entire path, but it still builds a believable picture to immerse you in that world that there's a response time, for instance, the ambulance doesn't appear, it eventually shows up and that's all triggered. But these systemic systems are great for making it believable. But when you have to do a mission across an open world city, you now have to combat these systemic systems right you either have to manage them or you've got to disable them and things like that obviously disabling them not the best idea because then you're kind of breaking the rules of the game like you're breaking the player's expectation at that point so if they knock someone over outside a mission or they do a crime or whatever or anything like that they expect these responses from the world but if they don't get that in a mission you're kind of breaking that like kind of wall and the player now comes down and say oh, i can do whatever i want and that's not what you want. You've got to find a way to manage and mitigate it, like between the mission states. 
and the free roam state. Yeah, I think it's I think it's really important to maintain a form of consistency between the functionality of the systems that you are exposing the player to, and actually trying to use those systems not just to override player decision, but actually empower them. So if you have like a, a mission where you, you're giving the player a challenge, right? Go do something over there. Well, the fact that he knows how these systems work because he's been exposed to them means that he can actually stop and think about what if I, I did this, right? And he does this and surprise, there's an outcome. For example, if you play Far Cry 5 and you run around with a flamethrower and you start burning the grass, the grass keeps burning and then houses keep burning and people get burning. There's a mission at some point where you find uh, an apple orchard or something and the apples are coated with the toxin or the neuro thing drug. And there's actually a bear that's eating the, the apples. Well, that's systemic because the bear is scripted, is not scripted. It's designed to actually eat those apples. But since the apples are coated with the, the drug, the bear gets crazy. So he goes fighting other bears. And, and these, these system interactions just generate a lot of complexity, a lot of unexpected outcomes. How do you test for that? that that's, or how do you test like un, unintended you know, consequences of, of like the bear attacking let's say, your main bad guy, and suddenly the main bad guy has been killed by that. Well, the, the, the way you test them is that you make a huge, huge list of all the systems that you have in the game, and you cross-reference them with the rest of the systems that are left in the game. Right. So you basically reach a point where, like, okay, so I have this system and this system. What happens if they interact? Well, if they're modular enough in nature, they're going to produce an effect. If there's no effect then maybe there's no need for you to showcase their interaction. But if you want an effect, then you can go to the programmers like and say, okay, so I have this really cool system, but I want it to work together with this system. And right now they're not working. So let's write some code so they can work together. This is exactly what I was trying to do with uh, the Automata missions for the DLC for the Watch Dogs 2. So uh, in, in the Automata missions, the goal of the entire mission pack is to steal a car. And uh, the goal was that we want to make a car that drives itself. Cars in Watch Dogs 2 don't drive themselves. There's always someone behind the wheel. If there's nobody behind the wheel, the cars stop. So what, what we wanted to, was that we had a car that would actually drive itself naturally through the streets. So it would make decisions. I'm going to go this way. I'm going to make this other way. You know stuff that would work the problem was that we wanted to to showcase this in a way that was interesting and um, at the same time in just showcasing this sort of mechanic is, isn't particularly interesting so what we wanted was to actually layer a bunch of systems on top of each other and try to actually effectively script with the systems that were already in the game yeah, and that meant that we would write a very very small and clean piece of script that would just trigger the systems to actually happen. And we had the, the automated car system, which was rewritten by coders. We had the reinforcement system. And then towards the end of the mission, there was a bit where you would actually had to solve a 3D puzzle that was on top of the car. 
So you had this thing. You, Marcus would steal the car. He would jump. The car would jump through the window of a building. He would be put in the middle of the street and running. And the players for the first 10 to 15 seconds, they don't even know what's going on. They, they, they think they're driving the car, but the car is actually going its own way. And then they just figure out, oh, I can't actually drive this. This is driving itself. And that's when you introduce the second system, which is the, the hacking system. Because what happens is that funny thing is once you dissociate the driving from the hacking and you just let the player hack things freely around the car, the player doesn't have to worry about driving the car. So he can just focus on hacking the police cars, hacking the explosive bits on the street and stuff like that, right? So we did that for a while and then the car the police was really really aggressive they would jump off bridges for you they would be, knock you out of the streets it was super super crazy stuff but at some point there would be this 3d puzzle that would be actually triggered on top of the car so now you have the automated car system going through the streets running right crazy nobody can control it you had the police following you in maybe five, six cars coming after you, jumping off bridges, trying to intercept you and destroy you. And then you had this puzzle that you had to solve at the same time. So the player was introduced to all these systems gradually. And eventually he would solve the puzzle and he would get control of the car and run into the sunset with it. But in order to get to that point where you could like perfect synergies between the systems, we had to, I had to start, start thinking about the fact that this system here works with this system. In what way does it work? And most of the time it didn't. So you just have to go back and like, can I please get a little bit of code to fix this? Can I please get a little code to fix that? Right? By actually trying to solve these things, you're, you're not actually forcing the player to play something that's totally scripted. You're exposing him to a scripted uh, event that's also, I think, 75% systemic, right? Because it's it's been built out of systems and not out of you just drive the car over there, then drive it over there, then just get there and do this, right? So the systems themselves, they do most of the job. And uh, yeah, you test them. That's how you do it. You, <laughs> you make a huge list and you test each interaction with it. But I, I think that's, uh, that's something that is worth mentioning. I mean... For a while there, after working on that project, I felt like this might actually be the future for level design when you're actually mm -hmm. trying to script with systems rather than actual script bits in order to produce systemic events in the game. So you can actually expose the player to facets of the game that aren't usually noticeable during main game, right? So you're giving him a new experience, but you're doing that by actually intercepting all the systems. I mean, just from a from a programming point of view, that's a very economical use of all of these systems because you've written a system that's for one area, and now you're reusing it in a not different way, but you're highlighting it differently to the player. So you're actually u using more of it. So it's quite beneficial. On it. Yeah, it's beneficial in uh, the at the, the end. All that matters is that you're producing an, an experience for the player, right? You're giving him something new, something that he hasn't seen. And it feels to me like this sort of thing isn't actually done very much. And it should be done more often. I mean, 
systems have a lot of potential in them. I'm a big fan of systems. I think the less scripting that you do, the better it is if you have really good systems in the game. I suppose if the systems are robust enough to handle intersecting and interacting with each other, you're right to give the player that experience. And it almost means if you're letting the systemic nature of the game come through, every player can play that mission play the exact same mission but get a different experience out exactly. of it right because you're letting you're letting systemic npcs or systemic traffic invade that space yes you'll have a few scripted things in it like maybe their objectives are the goal they've got to complete but the obstacles that come between come from the systems within the game and i think that makes for more interesting encounters because it means everyone that goes to a combat space not necessarily going to have the same encounter yeah. uh, yes the same cover setup is there but the different maybe different types of enemies and stuff like that there was an actual GDC talk from Matthias Warch about layer choice a couple of years ago that actually talked about this bit. Of course, he focused on that space, but he mentioned something super important that I think everybody, every level and level designer should be aware of and try to actually understand what this means. He called it the checkpoint test. The checkpoint test means that when you're playing a level and you're dying in that level so you're actually restarting that checkpoint again and again and again and again what you want as a level designer is that every time you restart the checkpoint the experience is different so it's not totally scripted you're not doing the same thing over again you're exposed to a problem that's similar however it requires you as a player to actually make new decisions inside the possibility space of the game, right? His example was that if you have like three amps and maybe some grunts and some other guys, what what's the extent of the possibilities that you can make? Well, maybe you're going to prioritize your targets based on how close one of them is, what sort of weapons are they using, what sort of weapon are you using, and other factors that just happen to be spotable inside one single frame. But the thing is, that's just one frame. What happens if they just move, right? So the priorities change. And that's exactly what you want. You don't want the player to play the same thing over and over and over and over again. You want him to actually dance around with the game systems, right? You want him to be able to interpret the the, the problem the way he sees fit and actually make his own decisions on how to solve it based on variables that might, might be juggled around. And I think systems do that a lot because you don't actually know what's going to happen. You might have an idea. You might feel like, oh, I know that the systems works in this particular way. I know that the police is going to follow me if I do something bad. But I don't know that they can actually jump off bridges when I do that. And when that happens, it's like, whoa, I didn't know they could do that. That's spectacular. What else can they do, mm -hmm. right? So it sort of yes. forces you to experiment with the with these systems. You're like, what else can happen in this? How dynamic is this entire system setup, right? And what happens is that this means that the players are going to be more engaged and they're going to be more eager to actually experiment with the tools that are given to them in a way that's organic rather than yeah more challenging as well it sounds sounds a bit like uh, your example the example that Matthias Watcher gave in in doom where you've got a sort of quick save from hell or a really bad checkpoint where you saved in a position which is almost impossible to recover yourself from and you think oh i can beat this 
and you 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 kind of work out the precise strategy frame by frame almost to get through it you know with the limited amount of health you manage to stupidly save with and the limited amount of ammo and you try again and again and again until you figure out the thing and there's a massive sense of accomplishment from that yeah so what you're saying is is really interesting because from a technical point of view it doesn't worry me so much but from a gameplay from a design point of view it is quite challenging because you're giving the player so much freedom you're giving up a massive amount of responsibility to the player to interpret the motivations you're giving them in a correct way so they essentially play the game in such a way that they have a good time yeah it feels like what you're saying is that this sort of design is more speculative than actual interpretative right so you're sort of speculating on what's going to happen but the thing is these kinds of experiences don't actually get shipped to the public unless they're really well tested so you sort of know if it's good or not good and if it's not good you're going to make sure that it's good yeah i think i think a very good example of this sort of systemic world that teaches you how to play it and how to make smart choices is of course uh, breath of the wild zelda mm-hmm. yeah. because yeah you start out in a cave you need to to push a, bo- a box, you need to climb a tree, you figure out that you can cut the tree, and then you, you sort of branch out into these millions of possibilities where you can do a lot of things. And then when you're faced with a challenge, like, for example, you find the book and the book says, oh, I, you need to cook this recipe here. What could it be? <laughs> and you're like, hmm, I need a fish. Where would I find the fish? And then you find the lake and you're like, how, how can I find yeah how can i have water yeah, how, yeah where can i have water and sort of the the level leads you to a place you're like oh there's a lake over there what if i threw a mm. stick of dynamite in the water and you throw the stick <laughs> of dynamite and the fish comes out or you use the bow to actually fish the, the catch the fish a magic magic moment i saw there is watching my my boys play mm-hmm. uh, breath of the wild and they learned how to cook stuff they learned how to do things they learned how to cut down trees and then they walked up in the mountains and they found a ravine and they were like trying to looking at the ravine and trying to jump over it and jump off it and then suddenly one of them said look there's a tree cut down the tree and the tree goes over the ravine and they've got a bridge and they just it was a really different kind of level of player engagement because there wasn't a little thing on the tree saying cut down tree yeah it wasn't a special tree but it's just like all scripted and stuff it wasn't a normal uh, tree placed exactly in the thing with a with a cinematic that plays with uh link kind of going oh it, it was just a normal tree in a, a place where they chose to cut that tree and it went over the ravine and they crossed the ravine and that's that's kind of yeah that's the freedom that they got this is exactly the type of player engagement that you want to put inside the sandbox. You want the players to actually acknowledge the the systemicity of the world, right? You want them to see it, you want them to understand it, and you want them to use it to solve the challenges that you give them. And the easier you facilitate this, the more enjoyment the players are going to get out of it. Yeah, it's it's you give them give them a really big, high level motivation, and then present them with a lot of ways that they can approach that, and then almost work backwards from that to work out all the things that they want to do. You always work backwards from that because 
you also want to make a game about something, right? So based on what sort of fantasy you want to apply to your game, you actually have to sort of coach the players to focus on the systems that you want to introduce in the game. So you can go for what Breath of the Wild does and just give you a one-to-one -one representation of what how things might work in the real life, right? So you can cut a tree, you can climb a rock, you can do this, you can do that. Or you can, you can actually try to expose the players to a bunch of new systems that they haven't been exposed to and slowly teach them new things, right? And that, that's sort of something that we would call it player coaching, where you're teaching them how to play your systems, right? And then if you build a game around those systems, then you don't have to worry about the fact that, oh, um, in Breath of the Wild, I can cut out this tree, but in Watch Dogs 2, I can't. Because the players look understand that this game follows these rules, right? So I don't have to cut the tree, but I can use this drone to navigate through a vent, and I can drive this car off a bridge, and I can do other things, right? I can actually influence AI inside the layout using the emote system, for example. Everything functions, and the player learns that he can actually use all this information to, to manipulate the, the sandbox in a way that he finds satisfactory. You've started, I was going to say codifying this, but you've started writing down your th thoughts on, on a blog on Medium, which we'll put a, a link in the description of the post which is have been super informative like you started out like how to handle cover for the player in in level systems and i think what you were alluding to as well earlier was how to to have a visual language system in, in your level design right having systems in the game that do certain things is one thing right having mm -hmm. pedestrians and traffic and sorts of like that's one thing but what you want to do in level design is to actually teach the player what each part of environment interaction does. So uh, if you can actually codify this in a formula the player understands, then he's going to be able to, to make his own idea about how am I going to go inside this layout, right? These covers are one meter high, these walls are three meter high, this other wall is four meter high, right? There's a, a small opening at the base that's like, exactly one meter by one meter and a half high so maybe i can use it to drive a, a mini car through that opening right and so if you if you provide enough consistency i mean if you use those things everywhere the player is eventually going to figure out that they're everywhere in the in the in the landscape mm -hmm. right and this is not just something that's it's not just codified in the game itself it's also in nature if you go outside in the street and you look at the buildings that surround you, you're going to notice that every building has like a four meter wall for a floor. So every floor is like an extension of that. There might be some variations, but that's based on it. Every person is, well, almost 1.8 meters, which is, which is just the, the exact height of a character inside a video game. If you look at Skyrim, if you look at Watch Dogs, if you look at GTA, the average height of a player is 1.8, right? You build all this information around the player size, and then the player is going to look over over the entire environment, and he's going to figure out, like, oh, so I can hide behind this cover, right? Oh, if I have this three-meter wall here, I can jump over it. But I, I know this because I can jump over every three-meter wall in the game. Mm -hmm. Right. And if I can't, 
well, there's the problem. Why can't I jump through here? Right. So you break, it breaks immersion. Well, I mean, if, if you can't jump over a three meter wall on purpose, not on purpose, then that's a bug, right? But you might introduce another mechanic saying, well, I can jump on it, but I can't get over it. So that maybe I can shimmy. Maybe you can shimmy. Maybe maybe I can uh, bring a box from somewhere else. Maybe I can park a car next to the wall and climb the car and then climb the wall because the games are systemic and it, it interprets the interaction between you and the wall based on the height of the wall. And if you put something next to it, it's no longer a four meter wall, it's a three meter wall. So you can jump over it, right? So the, the player actually looks at these and he comes up with his own solutions like, oh, what if I did that? What if I did this? Right. But you, if you codify this in the space and you try to keep it as consistent as possible, metrics wise, then the player's going to look at the space and he's going to see like, oh, so it's sandbox. I, I can use it to my advantage. I can climb this box. I can climb that box. I can jump over this fence. I can uh, do this crazy thing over here and so on and so forth. And what happens is that it also helps you visualize the opportunities that you have inside that space by looking at it from a top-down view right so you can look at it from a top-down view you can actually formulate the plan like because you're actually understanding what the purpose of that space is without you having to without it having to be explained to you in any particular way yeah i think it's an incredible thing to give to a player is to give them a chance to examine the battlefield before they approach it to look through a window and a door to look something from a high vantage point so you can go well this is going to be my plan exactly and it's a lot better if that plan works because the player is like <laughs> whoa so this thing works <laughs> what else works yeah. okay well, how what other components can i play with in this game right so it turns into a toy it turns into a toy that the player can just use however he wants that's awesome Julia, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you in this episode. I have made a, a bundle of notes just for me to go, go and start looking some of the stuff up. But hopefully people will start following you on, on Twitter because you've been just dropping the knowledge there. And also on Medium, which we'll put some links into the description. And on that note, thank you very much. Thank you. And thank you, Jonathan and Rob. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Thank you. The Level Design Podcast has been a Command Studio production. Our editor is Matthew Lever, and this episode has been produced by Bridie Rhodes. <laughs>